Now, though, as probably many of you know, we, uh, we are doing a small series, and we're going to get into it more, on image, but we've been promoting that today needs to be on the, the very heavy, uh, much-needed conversation of race. So this is something that we've told the church that's coming. This is something that we need to do. But before we actually get into uh, what the Bible has to say about race and we kind of get into that portion, what we did want to do is we wanted a voice to be spoken. And we wanted to be a voice, uh, uh, to be a voice that is from our community to be spoken. Now, I'm just going to be extremely, extremely clear here. Our, there is a fear that exists right now that having this voice shared, it's a minority voice, to have this voice be shared is as if we're using this person. Friends, that is absolutely untrue. Um, He has a strong voice, but I believe he has an even stronger story to share. And so I want that truth and I want that story to be told to our community. So if you guys would, would you welcome up Duran? Keep the, he's not up here yet. Yeah, 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 all right. There's your microphone right there. Welcome, friend. Thanks for having me. You are, you are very welcome. Morning. <laughs> so um, when I first heard Duran's story, um, I, I immediately said the words, that's powerful. And it wasn't just because it was just another classic story. It's so pointed, it's so sharp, and it's so needed, and it's so gospel-centered that both uh, your pastors, Pastor Lorenzo and myself, said this story needs to be told. Um, and so, Duran, I would love for you to sort of be able to tell our community how you came to know Jesus and sort of what that was like, and I'll let you kind of take it from there. Sure. Um, so, I grew up out here in West L.A. Is anyone else actually from West L.A. here? Show of hands. <laughs> Melissa. One. I went to school with Melissa in middle school. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so I grew up family, like missionary family. You know, my dad's a pastor. So um, kind of through that, and also being one of the only, like, mixed kids on the West Side, I had a lot of interesting experiences growing up where kind of like a lot of different scenarios where I was the only person who looked like me. Whether it was at church, the church was all white, and I learned really early that I didn't really look like anybody else. And then my sports teams were all African-American. My community was all like Hispanic. It was weird. I kind of had to wear all these different hats socially, and trying to learn my identity was very hard growing up. I'm half black, half white, and so I never really fit in anywhere. I kind of had to learn white society and learn to fit in with that culture And then I also had to learn African-American culture, fit in there, learn Hispanic or island culture, and kind of fit in in all these different places. And I learned that really early. I think around nine years old is when I finally started to realize, like, oh, I don't look like anyone else. You know, I'm I'm different. And God kind of used that very early on in me learning my identity was in Christ and not in my community or what I looked like or who I hung out with. Um, I was like six feet tall at like 12. So then I was like... (laughs) So, you know, sports, it was like, oh, you know, give him a basketball. You know, I played football in college. And my identity not being even in sports, you know, that was the next step of learning that. And kind of through all of that, also losing my parents' faith, uh, because they were really strong Christians. 
kind of combining those two things, you know, as I grew up, losing my identity and my, and my culture and my surroundings, and then losing my identity in sports, and then losing my parents' faith, and, and that's where God began to work on me, and, and I learned my identity was in Jesus. And yeah, that's kind of the, the background. So what I love about this story, and what you and I have talked about at, at different points in some length, is... It's in some sense losing the identity, but not in the point of what we were talking about even just a few moments ago, to the point of colorblindness. So there's a, this is sort of understanding that what's the truest thing about you. Do you want to speak into that a little bit? Yeah, um, I think this is kind of the next step for me. I think I truly became a Christian around like 18, like uh, kind of on my way to college. But like even like thinking about what university means, you know, university like is unity in diversity. And then, like, uh, I grew up again in, you know, the 90s and 80s where all of a sudden, like, oh, race is fine. Like, there's no issues anymore. Yeah. Like, we don't want to see that. You know, it's not a problem. And so anybody who still was going through those issues was like, oh, like, that's part of a past, you know, that, that no longer exists. But, you know, kind of through that, uh, learning that the universe, like, the diversity in equality and in the gospel kind of, you know, the, race is a, is a gospel issue. It's not a social issue. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even beginning to learn that, I, I learned to talk with people around me on just the, the different things that I'd experienced and kind of start to, you know, enlighten them to the fact that we can, you know, have joy and like celebrate our differences. And like, and that's part of the gospel, you know, there, there were so many different races that came from everywhere in the, in the Bible who were, you know, missionaries to other places, even among their own cultures. And so, you know, learning to celebrate diversity, I think, is better than learning to not see race at all or color at all. What would your encouragement be to anybody in this room who is struggling either in a church community or whatever community circles they may be in with finding their identity in that, what would your encouragement be? You said you found that, but what would you say to us, even exhort us in the sense of constantly being reminded to be able to place our identity in Christ, first and foremost? I think it can be any scenario. It doesn't even have to be a race. This could be in a job. What you do is not your identity. Where you live is not your identity. Who you associate with, what music you listen to, what it basically... Anybody can lose their identity here and, and attach it to Christ, but everyone is going to have one of those and resonate with one of those things, mm-hmm. even if it's not necessarily race. I would love, thank you for that. I would love if we could just take the next few moments for our church community and, if it's okay, have you pray for our race relations, race, racial reconciliation, for this community alone. We can't just take, take a bunch of time and pray for every single church in Los Angeles is great or within this country, but our f- main concern right now is the circles that we are involved in here. And as a person who is part of our church, part of the minority culture, we would love, and I would be honored if you would then just pray for that right now, here and now. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's, guys, let's, let's pray for this. Thank you, Lord, for the day. Uh, yes, Thank you that we could all come together and worship you today and pray for Casey's message here that you give him the words to speak. Uh, pray for everyone's hearts here that they can uh, listen and, and be open to hearing some interesting things here that, that we could all surrender our, our different identity crises here and, and attach ourselves wholly to you. And yeah, I pray for our meeting today. I pray that this would be an awesome experience for everyone. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Duran, thank you so much. I'll take that mic from you, friend.
That is, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful, powerful stories in the sense of not being able to, growing up both with a black parent and a white parent, and being able to kind of not be able to find your spot in either one of those cultures, but being able to be, be able to be offered or know that in Jesus there is an identity, and that is what brought Duran to the Lord, is a powerful, powerful testimony. So, if you have a Bible, Colossians chapter 3. That's in the New Testament. We're going to be referencing Duran's story a lot and getting into it and sort of unpacking. He was sort of the introduction of, of what we're going to kind of be getting into today. Colossians chapter 3. If you think about it, any protest against oppression or any civil rights movement has had the burning question in its chest, what is the human person? I read a story about a case in 1857 called Dred Scott versus Sanford. And in this case, Dred Scott sued for the right to be a free man and the Supreme Court voted a 17-2 vote. Majority vote saying no. African Americans were not American citizens and therefore were not able to tap into the justice system. But with those two dissenting votes, one of them was Supreme Court Justice John McLean, and he said this, A slave is not mere chattel. He bears the impress of his maker, and he is destined to an endless existence made in the image of God, not mere possession. He's a man. No people group collective church have a clear answer to that burning question than the Christian. This was Duran's witness and Duran's story. Francis Schaeffer, one of my favorite theologians of all time, who I quoted at length last week, he reminds every Christian in this room, including me, he says, all people bear the image of God, They have value, not because they are redeemed, but because they are God's creation and God's image. Modern man who has rejected this has no clue as to who he is. And because of this, he can find no real value for himself or for other men. Hence, he downgrades the value of other men and produces the horrible thing we face today, a sick culture in which men treat men as less than human, as machines, as Christians, he says, as Christians, as Christians, as Christians. However, we know the value of men. So what is the human person? The Bible, the Bibles that you are holding right now, gives the booming answer that all persons are made in the image of God. So like I said last week, we started a small series on image, the doctrine of the image of God and how its very essence must shape the way that we interact with God. That's what we talked about last week. Today, though, how this apex truth shapes the way that we are to interact with one another. How the, Im- uh, the image of God tells us and informs us how we are supposed to interact with one another. Today we are, as you all know, sitting with, with the image of God in the sharp, dividing, needed discussion of race. If you know this or not, the Bible does not ignore this topic on race, and thus, neither will we collective church. Now, let's just diffuse the tension, and if this is your, your first time ever with us, welcome. <laughs> but let's just diffuse the tension right now. The words race, racism, 
white privilege, stereotype, black, white, slavery, borders. These words in and of themselves conjure up diversity even in our disposition. Meaning for some, today's topic will bring an extreme, extreme discomfort. For others, it's only going to bring deep relief. And not only do we have a diverse room of feelings and culture and color, but also in education and in experience. See, if I can just confess with all honesty, and if anybody wants to join me in that confession, all aboard, join me. But most of my formal education about race is from small, 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 like population 150, small town circuit. Um, that, that was the level of education. And it, 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 I'm just, it was shameful. It's shameful. I was raised to think and believe, probably like many of us, that you know, the Native Americans were so pumped that the white man showed up that they made a Thanksgiving meal for the colonization. Like, yeah, get in here. Let's have a Thanksgiving meal. Nope. I was raised to believe or think that simply African-Americans were slaves, and that's not good. But you know how I know how they told me that? They popped in the movie Roots, and that was the extent of my education. Raised to think or believe a civil war happened, not the Marvel Universe ones. African-Americans are no longer slaves anymore after the Civil War. There is no longer racism after the Civil War. Again, my education consisted of who? Who was Jim Crow? What did he do? Shameful. And finally, my education consisted of Martin Luther King had a dream, and now we are in a post-racial era. Thank you, Dr. King. Friends, allow me to be the first here to say that I have been ignorant the majority of my entire life. And I confess here to you today that I still have ignorance looming in me. But, I seek to shed by the power of the Holy Spirit and with this community's help, that ignorance. So this morning, please do not hear me saying that I claim to be the authority um, on the issue. I don't. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a professor. I'm not even part of the minority. So I wouldn't be shocked if at least some here today were asking, what qualifies you? That is a very, very fair and honest question. My response to that would be this, that I speak today because I am a Bible teacher and I am a pastor. And any authority I will be speaking of this morning is not my own, but scriptures. So in full vulnerability, this is a very sobering, um, humbling role I have within this community. We all have a role to play. Mine happened to be this, and so it's a, I, I just want you to, I don't take this lightly. But I also say that today will not be perfect. Today can't be exhaustive. I wish I could say everything. I was back there telling Pastor Lorenzo, there's so much to be said and, and I can't say it all as much as I wish I could. So I just say this as well. For some in this room, I will go way too far. And for some in this room, I will not go far enough. So you can save your emails, Okay. For some in this room, I will comfort. And for some in this room, there will be affliction. For some in this room will feel encouraged. And for some in this room, they will feel exhorted. That will happen because my goal is to not scratch the itchy ears of man or man's desire to be comfy at a church gathering. 
collective church at this pulpit, we desire to be diligent to faithful and faithful to God and God alone. That is this church's leadership promise to you. So today, I will only scratch the surface of this vast, vast subject. There's so much to grow in. There's so much to learn. But today is one of many, many, many first steps in moving forward on the devastating issue of racism. And because the gospel and because the good news of Jesus, because Christians believe in that gospel, because then the gospel demands this, we as a church community will take those steps boldly and humbly. And lastly, by means of introduction and enough caveats, we'll get into it. I have no intention of excluding or minimizing the necessity of reconciliation among all of God's people. Latino, Asian, Indian, every tribe, tongue, and nation. So what we'll be talking about today includes all people groups and cultures. But also, today we'll have moments where the greater weight and discussion will land on the tension that exists between, and forgive me for this vast oversimplification, but, but between the white community and the black community. Friends, there are so many, so many, so many layers with the horrifying reality of racism. From, from, from systemic justice to social justice to education reform. And all of them are extremely important. And I believe the church has a part to play in every single one of them. However, I want to make the case today that those are byproducts byproducts. Those realities are symptoms of a much larger soul issue. What is the soul of the issue? Guess what? I'm going to pound this drum again. It's the image of God. Image of God, image of God. Allow me to put up some two by fours and give a very quick general framework for the image of God for anybody who was not here last week. You see, in the Near East, ancient temples were revered, exclusive, designated spaces where humans could experience the presence of gods, plural. So in biblical times, in order to meet with a god or your god of choice, you had to hop in an Uber and drive down to a temple. But this is why the biblical doctrine of the image of God of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are so um, fascinating. Because God didn't create, God did not demand a temple for himself. What did God do? Well, he planted a garden. God is the great gardener. And in this garden temple, humans had a full access pass to God, but also God had a full access pass to mankind. In the garden, there was no doors, no shutters, no soldiers, no gates in the way. Collective church, God saw the garden as his temple, not only because he dwelled there, but because of what we introduced last week, if you were here. That being the definition of image. See, deep within every ancient temple, you would discover a statue of a deity that the temple was built for. These were these physical embodiments of those deities that represent their presence, their authority, reflection of them, and so on and so forth. And as we saw last week, God declared that all humans, all, 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 all humans, you and I were that presence, authority, and representation. And because of that representation, we intrinsically possess dignity, value, and worth. Way more on that next week when we talk about the unborn. 
So hopefully it's clear that respect and worth to all forms of man and woman was not Dr. King's original idea. It was not Gandhi's original idea. It is not my original idea. This truth originated and was set forth by God, the God of the Bible. So to be made in the image of God means we have been given equal, equally God's authority to reign and rule. And that is exactly what we see happens in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. God, get this, and we're getting to our point. God asks humans to multiply and even express dominion and subdue all of creation. You express dominion, and you subdue. But it's here in that dominion that we see where the sin of racism can take its form. See, it's not shocking to anybody here, even unchristians who are here this morning, when I say the words that racism is a sin issue. Even unchristians are like, yep, I know that, duh. But for the next few moments, I'd like to talk about two. So if you're taking notes, I'd like to talk about two distinguishing marks of that sin within racism. You see, the image of God went from having superiority and dominion over, over creatures of the land and creatures of the air and creatures of the sea to superiority over other image bearers, over other image bearers, one another. And this is what Schaefer was saying when he said, hence he downgrades the value of men and produces this horrible thing that we face today, a sick culture in which men treat men as less than humans, as machines. This happened because Genesis chapter three within the Bible tells the haunting historical story where men and women as image bearers see themselves in this temple garden and they say, God, you, God, I also want dominion over you. Dominion happens over one another. The evilness of racism happens over one another because we thought that we could also subdue God. So then the first step we must acknowledge within racial strife is a symptom. We must acknowledge that it is a symptom of humanity's sin. And if we can acknowledge that we are all sinners, then we can also acknowledge, and hear me, this is going to ruffle some feathers, then we can also acknowledge that the potential for racism lurks in every heart of every man and woman here. Now, when I've told that to other people, or we've had that conversation, I've said it to family or friends, that the potential for racism exists within our, everybody's heart, within our heart. There was this immediate fear, sharp, biting, no, I'm not a racist. So what's the problem? Even in a liberal frontline city like Los Angeles, for so many, its metric of success in Los Angeles in a lot of ways is avoid being a racist, don't be a racist, and don't say anything stupid. That has become our metric for success. Avoid, avoid, avoid. And if we're honest, that's because, I mean, let's let's just admit, that's become the bar for race relations within the country, right? And probably even for our own circles. Well, at least I'm not a racist. That's our standard. But for the church, we are called to something infinitely, infinitely deeper. Allow me to explain. Genesis chapter 1. This is so rad. Genesis chapter 1 is the lens and episodes of God's creative activity. The creation account, and stay with me here, is stewing with difference. The creation account is stewing with difference. 
We don't have time to go over every single verse. But in creation, you will witness that God is bringing the order of difference. The order of difference in every pocket of his creation. So you see creator and you see creature. You see land and you see sea. You see sun and you see moon. You see light and you see day. You see work and you see rest. You see the sea creatures, you see land creatures, and so on and so forth. There are similarities, yet stark contrast, showing us that creation was the introduction of the interdependent differences. God's creation only makes sense apart from the other. This is what Dr. King was getting at when he said the words, interrelated structure of reality. So for the church, if our standard is, well, at least I'm not a racist, we've both misunderstood creation, but also the image of God. We are called to interrelated structure of reality with other image bearers to visibly demonstrate eternity. I want to explain, I want Dr. King to explain what he meant by this interrelated structure of reality. This is an incredible quote. He says, in a real sense, all of life is interrelated. All men are caught up in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never, get this, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you are ought to be until I am what I am ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. So if God's purpose was to bring us together, then it's easy to see what sin has done. What? It separates us. It separates us. Sin wants to separate us. This being the second distinguishing mark of sin and racism. Separation, segregation. The first one being superiority, now separation. I heard a a Bible teacher explain separation like this. He goes, imagine you walk into a room and you see two groups of people. And you see one group made up of your ethnic background. You see the other group made up of a different ethnic background background. And then he says, which I get and I agree with, that our minds like lightning so fast evaluate the group that is different from us as nothing in common, different, thus unsafe. But on the other side of the room, the group which looks like us, we intrinsically think like me. Thus, we think affinity, and we think safe. This is separation, this is segregation in its most basic setting. All this creates what author Chris Hewitt calls a poverty of relationships. That's the tendency or desire to make relationships only with people who are culturally similar, affinity similar, or interest similar. And the sad truth is, in many cases, that cultural similarity falls in racial lines. Chris Ewerts explains Fuller. He says that when the majority of our friends are similar to us racially and culturally, and we don't know people who fit in with other categories, media, and other cultural narratives within our community, that shapes the way we think about the other. And that is called implicit racial bias. 
Implicit racial bias, if you don't know, is, is being that despite our best intentions and without our awareness, stereotypes and assumptions creep into our minds and it affects our actions. Implicit racial bias, which is a terrifying reality, has also been called the new face of racism. I will confess that I too have caught myself guilty of this. The church is to be on an entirely different playing field than any other organization or people group in the entire world. When it comes to who is safe, when it comes to similarities, when it comes to relationships. So collective church, disciple makers, Christians, we pray for and work hard for gospel diversity, not because it's trendy, not because every other church is like, this is what we got to do now, and not because it's just a nice idea. We do this because we realize through the interrelated structure of reality that we are in need. We do this because we realize we are in need. We are incomplete without the other. Jerry Maguire was right. You complete me. We are incomplete without the other. This was why, this is how mankind was established. Interrelated structure of reality. I am incomplete without you. See, a robust theology of Genesis 1.26, as we saw last week, let us make man in our image, shows us that if the Christian God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, exist in interdependent reality, then who are we to think we have a choice outside of the matter? If we don't have those who are different than us, culturally, socially, ethnically, in gender, in age, and in in, in infinity then we will have a limited, stunted, uh, stunted uh, truncated understanding of God's image. Collective church, a conversation that comes up more often than it should, and a request for coffees or many other things that I have the honor of having with people, is people sitting me down and telling me, there are not enough people here who are like me. They will say, there's not enough people I can connect with. I'll say, there's not enough people of similar interest as me. And what I say to that, more often than not, and I need to be gentler in the way I do it, but what I say to that is, exactly. There's not enough people here who are like me. Exactly. That is the point. (laughs) So then, a pointed question to every man and woman here is do you, do we, do I live our life in such a way where we encounter another, another person who is culturally different, man or woman, and say, I need you. So for the people who are like, well, racism is not really a thing for me. Like, but do you live your life in such a way where you actually see that person as I absolutely need them or I am incomplete? And if you see what this does, is this transcends the goal of equality and it sets our aim, church, on unity. One of the most powerful illustrations um, in the Bible to me, in the New Testament, is, is Philip and an Ethiopian. And so Philip, if you guys don't know, if you guys remember, this was years ago when we went through the book of Acts, but Philip was this deacon. He was this incredible evangelist and he just got done leading and spearheading one of the most extreme intense revivals in Samaria that you, like, you will ever see. 
It was so intense and everything's popping and everybody's having a good time and it's just super, super great and everything's going. And then the Holy Spirit tells him, go. Philip, you need to get out of here now and you need to go down a very certain road. And so Philip sets off on this road and as he arrives in this road and he's sort of just wandering, a chariot goes by holding an Ethiopian, a black man. And as this chariot goes by, he can hear the Ethiopian speaking out loud. He's reading, Philip can hear, the book of Isaiah. And so Philip gets this wild idea as he hears his chariot go flying by. I'm going to run after this chariot. I'm going to run after a chariot. I heard a pastor one time explain that he did some sort of math that Philip would have had to run like 30 miles per hour. So amazing. So he starts booking it. I believe it. He starts booking him and he's running outside and he's talking to this Ethiopian and he's saying, do you know or understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian goes, how can I? Unless somebody explains it to me. This is a conversation outside a car window. Like this is what's happening. But then as the Ethiopian says, how can I unless somebody helps me understand the book of Isaiah, which was about Jesus. How can I? The most beautiful thing happens. Acts chapter 8, verse 31. I believe we have it if we do. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. It is so easy to pass by this. Come up and sit with me. As long as Philip was on the outside of this chariot, running, separate, segregated, that's one thing. But the minute an Ethiopian black man says to a dark, olive-skinned Jewish man, sit with me, everything changes. Everything. Everything. It is such a small moment but it's those small moments which are the most impactful. Sit with me. It's those small moments which I believe give credibility that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the solution to racism, the solution to hate, and the solution to fear. How? Well, Professor Jarvis Williams says this, racial reconciliation is not an implication of the cross, It is the work of the cross. Now that might frustrate or confuse some here, but if you allow me to explain, I think you'll agree that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, him being the substitution for our punishment and man wanting to be superior. So what Christ has made through the cross is death to an old man and offers and offers and offers a new man, a new self, a new humanity, and a new race, a new race. This is what sees Duran's heart, a new identity that is far more secure. When one becomes Christian, this becomes the truest thing about us. You see, friends, we are not primarily from Fresno. We are not primarily from Los Angeles. We're not prim- you know, primarily an Anglo or African-American or Asian or Latino. We are citizens of God's new nation a new race. And our verses for today, Colossians chapter three, verse eight, if you have it opened before you, check down at verse eight. It says this, but now you must put them all away. You new nation, you new race, you must put them all away. What do we have to put away, Paul? Here's what he says. Anger, 
wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices. This imagery he's talking about is like literally throwing a corpse over. Get rid of that corpse. That's his imagery here. Verse 10, and get this. Lance, this is for you, dude. And put on that new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. And after what? After what? The image of its creator. But then, bear with me, a revolutionary, scandalous, staggering statement is made by the civil rights activist that is Paul the Apostle. Don't know if you know this or not, but most of his letters, if not all, are fighting racism, superiority, and segregation. These next few words are no different. These are in some intense words. Look at this. Look at verse 11. Here there is not, 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 not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Greek and Jews were the most divided in almost every single way. To call out barbarians and Scythians is a reference to how cultured Greeks or Romans would view anybody whose speech or lifestyle or habits were foreign. And then Paul finishes by saying this, slave or free. Friends, this is a reference to the deepest division of class there was. And this is probably as good a time to say it. If there are people here struggling right now going, I really like this, but I cannot listen to another word because your Bible promotes slavery. Or people who are thinking, I cannot listen to another word because your Bible curses interracial marriage. Friends, those are perversions and lies. And I am offering now myself to you either for a burrito conversation or right after this to talk about those horrific, horrific lies. So I'm putting that out there. We do not have time to get into today and that breaks my heart. But there's an answer to all of those thoughts. Look at verse 11. This is what saved Duran. This is what is so gorgeous, so beautiful. But Christ is all and in all. And allow me just to read this now to the church. How we are supposed to be one race, diverse, rich in relationship, not impoverished. And how we are supposed to be and behave. So then Christians, diverse Christians in this room, what we are about to read and hear me so clearly is not an option. This is an obligation. Reconciliation between us and God has happened. Now this is how we maintain unity with brothers and sisters in this way. And this is so rich. Go get this tattooed on your forearm when we're done, okay? Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were called in one body, one body, one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Friends, we cannot change ultimate change. We cannot change the outcome of racism in this country. But we can in our home, classroom, neighborhood, and office. Philosopher Edmund Burke said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is good, is for good men to do nothing. So in closing, what I'd like to do is very practically call all image barriers and disciple makers and change agents in this room to unified efforts, resolutions, and fundamental, fundamental principles. So I'm going to go over some practical efforts, okay? I encourage you to write these down and put these deep within us. Number one, in no particular order, not in order of importance, but we must make every effort to read our Bibles with contextual accuracy. We must read our Bibles with contextual accuracy. Why? Because this will continue to shape our theology of diversity and integration. We can no longer read, this is written for me, a white dude. It's a love letter for God, and it's just about me, an individual. Nope. There is a very, there's a pastor who gives an extremely incredible quote, and it's so good, but it's really long. And if you guys bear with me, it'll pay off on how we are supposed to read our Bible. So pay off, or just stick with me. It's so impactful on how we are to read our Bible, okay? This is what Brian Zahn says. He goes, I'm trying to read the Bible for all it's worth. Good intentions. He goes, but I'm not a Hebrew. I'm not a Hebrew slave suffering in Egypt. I'm not a conquered Judean deported to Babylon. I'm not a first century Jew living among Roman occupation. I, he was saying as the white man, as a citizen of a superpower, I was born among the conquerors. I live in the empire. But I want to read the Bible and think it's talking to me. This is a problem, he says. One of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that we find the narrative told from the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the conquered, the occupied, the defeated. This is what makes it prophetic. We know that history is written by the winners. This is true, except in the case of the Bible, it's the opposite. This is the subversive genius of Hebrew prophets. They wrote from a bottom-up perspective. And then he says, imagine a history of colonial America written by Cherokee Indians and African slaves. This would be a different way of telling the story. And that's what the Bible does. It's a story of Egypt told by the slaves, the story of Babylon told by the exiles, a story, uh, the story of, um, of Rome told by the occupied. But what about those brief moments when Israel appeared to be on top? In those cases, the prophets told Israel's story from the perspectives of the peasant poor as a critique of the royal elite. <clears throat> the fact that I didn't get an amen, it's fine, it's whatever. We must make a valiant effort to read the Bible with its communal and ethnic point of views. And it's just so it's said here, because I didn't know where else to put in the talk. Jesus wasn't white. Jesus wasn't American. Jesus wasn't blonde or Republican. Just so it's said here. Do with it what you want. Okay, moving on. Second, we must make an effort to raise our race IQ collective church. Raise our race IQ. You and I need to learn the language and terms. We must know what implicit racial bias means. 
We must know our history. Holy smokes. Lorenzo knows so much about American history, way more than me, and he's Canadian. You know how embarrassing that is? We must know our history, and we must fight, 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 fight to remove ignorance on all levels. And I would just say this, this means the majority culture here especially need to read authors and theologians of other culture and thought. I know that this church loves podcasting Matt Chandler and Tim Keller. They're great. We also need to be reading and listening Bruce Fields, Dr. Robert Smith, all the way to John M. Perkins. We have to be. Third, we must make an effort to have a regular conversation regarding the heavy issue of race within our church. And then you guys go, yeah, preach more sermons. No, I will, but it's not all on me. I have an extremely important role, I believe, in this church, but it's only a small part of this church. We need to be having the conversations more and more and more. To be honest, we need to be asking questions and and answering questions under the banner of edification. When we have friends who are ethnically, racially different than us, then we need to create a, and when we do that, we can then finally create a, a safe place to ask dumb questions. I was able to, this week, have conversations with people who are ethnically different than me, and they created such an amazing, an amazing space for me. People ask dumb questions. We need to ask questions. And we also need to be extremely patient in answering those questions. Fourth, we must make every effort to be quick to deny, not to be quick, excuse me, not to be quick to deny the presence of racism in our own hearts. Well, at least I'm not a racist. Self-examination is so, 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 so important. Fifth, majority culture here, we need to make every effort to seek and understand white privilege. That probably frustrated some people. What I mean is, we need to understand what that white luxury is. I have learned even so much in my time of prep, even this past week. My eyes have been open to different resources of, of shampoo bottles and hotel rooms to the color of Band-Aids all the way to the entirely white Harry Potter cast. I just don't think about it. I heard a pastor one time talk about, and I'm going to butcher this because it's not in my note and I'm ranting now, which I said do not do on this Sunday, but here I am, great. I, I'm going to say it about me. I don't think about being white. <laughs> the pastor, I was told, he, he gave the example that, I was hearing this from, he goes, he gave the example that a two-armed man, that's what he said, in a two-armed society, you don't think about two arms. He goes, the minute, the minute you are one-armed, all you think about is how different I am. I have one arm. I'm different, I'm different, I'm different. And if I want to be full confession, the times I actually think that I am white is in times when I'm surrounded by the majority of ethnically diverse people. So I can't even imagine what the minority here thinks all the time. It's just the thought. I do not think that way. And that is my privilege. And it's not a 
not something that is, is sinful in the sense of like, oh my, I'm so busted because I'm white. But ignorance in that part, not understanding, is where it becomes trouble. It's a luxury that I've had. It's a luxury that many of us have, have, have had. And it's just, that's part of the ignorance that I'm constantly trying to weed out by the power of the Holy Spirit and this community's help. Lastly, love, 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 and humility in our approach, in our efforts. Humility. I need so much humility. You need so much humility. Because I'm going to say this. We will not do this right. Meaning we will fail and we will get knocked down. But humility through Christ is what often will soften those failures, our mistakes, or mishaps. So we must always remember our verses for today, which says, put on then as God's chosen holy ones, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Again, that's a New Year's resolution. So let's respond. On my right and on my left, you guys maybe see these tables. This is communion. They are double stacked cups with representative elements of Christ's body and Christ's blood in each one. Hear me now, communion stands as a testimony that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, man, woman, black or white, whatever in this room, but all are one in Christ who redeems and restores us to the original unity of humanity. A divided communion is no communion at all. Second, prayer. Between these trees, right here, there's gonna be people with yellow lanyards who want to pray for you. I would encourage you, as I encourage myself every week, is go and receive prayer and confess and just say, I need prayer. I've recognized my own implicit racial bias or whatever it could possibly be. Go and just pray for your circles of influence. Because we are a church that believes in the power of intercession and the power of prayer for anything, you guys can go for prayer for anything. There really should be a lot of lines to these prayer teams because we believe in this. I'm so sick of, we, we, gotta, we gotta practice what we preach. So if we have something like, I recognize this in my own life, or I just want to pray for our community, let's go and pray for it with the other person who we need. And lastly, we're going to sing, and I'm going to make this point. When we sing, it's as one voice. That's what's so beautiful, beautiful about corporate gatherings. We sing it's with one voice, worshiping one God with one purpose. This is unifying. And if we can't at least sing together, if we can't worship together, then all of our efforts discussed today are doomed. If we can't do this See, it starts with us unified in admiration to our creator before we can go unified in activity for our creator. Amen? Let's pray.